morning, everyone. Thank you, Sally. Thank you, everyone who's led us this morning. Last, uh, last Sunday, at the end of what I shared, I mentioned sex. And I said that this week we're going to talk about it. Uh, that type of comment tends to provoke a reaction. It did last Sunday. It kind of has a little this morning. Some of you have forgotten that I said it last week. And if you were here, you now wish you had remembered I'd said it, because you probably wouldn't be here. And so there is possibly, as I even say, what I'm going to talk about this morning, a mixture of nervousness and anxiety and a little intrigue. But the reason that, that, that we're going to talk about sex is because as we continue reading Ephesians, which we as a church have been doing since April, and as we continue to think about what it means to live a life worthy of our calling, our gospel calling, as Paul urges every single Christian to do, and I, which is on the screen, then in light of all of that, we've got to talk about sex. And the reason is that it's a core discipleship issue, and Paul addresses it in this letter as we're about to find out. Now, to say that I'm slightly uneasy this morning uh, is an understatement, not because I'm embarrassed to talk about sex or because I don't think I should, but simply because talking about a biblically orthodox and historically Christian perspective on sex has got to a point and a place in our society and in our culture of not only being somewhat controversial, but also rather offensive. And even when I say that, that makes some of us now more nervous. Because immediately in our minds we're thinking about same-sex attraction and so-called gay marriage, which are such live and contentious issues at the moment. And, and we're now wondering, like, what is he going to say about those? And added to that is the reality that for many people, this is deeply personal. Of course, sex is personal. But the implications of a biblically orthodox and historically Christian perspective on sex with regard to those who, for example, identify with the LGBTQI community, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, questioning, and intersex community, For them, this is very personal. In fact, there may be some people here this morning for whom this is far too up close and personal because of the impact on you or the impact on a member of your family or one of your friends or one of your colleagues. And then added to this is the fact that so often, so often whenever this issue is talked about in church or by Christians in the kind of public square, people are le regularly left feeling angry and hurt and confused and disillusioned or at each other's throats. And so based on, on some of that, I need to say a couple more things by way of introduction. The first is, please hear me in this, this is a sermon, this isn't, an, or it's a, an attempt at a sermon that's going to last about 20 minutes, 
25 max. And therefore, I'm not going to deal with or cover very much, which means I run the risk of leaving far more questions than answers, and I will inevitably this morning frustrate lots of you. But then, there's nothing new in that. Secondly, our text for this morning is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. And so I simply am going to stick with that. I'm going to try not to go off script too much. And thirdly, I am aware that lots more needs to be said and should be said, but I also realize that it cannot simply be said in these brief moments. There are a number of issues and questions that are going to spin out of our reflections this morning, and therefore we do need to create safe spaces, safe places where we can talk about, where we can discuss, where we can debate as we journey together as a community. But in all of that, we must always keep the main thing, the main thing, which is loving God with our entire beings and loving our neighbors as ourselves. And so in a sense, with with all of that said and with all of those disclaimers in place, let's dive into God's word. If if you were here last Sunday, we, we thought about the need to be properly dressed. And so we identified five things that you need to be taking off. If you are a Christian, five things you need to be taking off on a regular basis, five negatives. We also identified five things that you should be putting on on a regular basis, five positives. And every time we looked at those things, we gave a reason, a motive behind it. And remember, what I was saying last week is that all of what we looked at then is what is involved in living a life true to our calling, a life worthy of our gospel calling. And so in summary, here are the five things. Hopefully they'll, you'll remember them. We have to put off telling lies, says Paul, and you've got to put on speaking truthfully. And what is the motive? Unity. Because lying destroys and wrecks relationships. Secondly, you've got to put off uncontrolled anger, anger that lashes out, anger that has left to fester overnight or over time. You've got to take it off. And what have you got to put on? Appropriate anger, righteous anger, anger such as what IJM feel about the issue of modern day slavery. And what's the motive for that? so that you will not give the devil a foothold. Because you see, if you nurse anger, the devil will wreak havoc in your life and in the lives of those around you as you lash out. Thirdly, put off stealing, put off theft. What have you got to put on? Honest to God work. What is the motive? So that you can share with others, so that you can be generous. Fourthly, what have you got to put off? Unwholesome talk. Any talk that tears people down, says Paul, you've got to take it off. And what have you got to put on? You've got to put on words and speech that build people up, edify. And then finally, put off bitterness, rage, anger, yelling and all malice. What should you put on? Kindness and compassion and forgiveness. And why should you do this? Because God has forgiven you. Because of the grace of God. And so my question to anybody who was here last week is this. How have you got on as you have got dressed and undressed this week? And are you here this morning properly dressed? Or are some of you hanging on to anger? Or on wholesome talk or whatever? 
Now, the reason I've gone over that again is because the teaching that we now move on to continues. It, it flows from chapter 4 into chapter 5. Paul, at the end of chapter 4, in the beginning of chapter 5, doesn't introduce a new topic. He keeps talking about what it means to live out your true ID, to live out a life worthy of your calling. And if you think the bar has been set high, as we've thought about this, what Paul says next takes discipleship to a whole new level. A few people on the way out last week said, listen, David, this is tough teaching. Like, any chance of a break? Like, this is, this is challenging, this is stretching. But you know, following Jesus is tough. It is a stretch. It's why Jesus said on a daily basis, you've got to pick up your cross, you've got to deny yourself, and you've got to follow me. But it's also vitally important to remember that not only is this a better way of life, it's hard, yes, but it is a better way of life. It is the best way to live. We can also know that by the grace of Almighty God and the indwelling help of the empowering, enabling, energizing Spirit of God, we can live like this. We can take off what we need to take off. We can put on what we need to put on. We can walk this out. And so... Please stand with me for the public reading of God's Word. From Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 7, they'll be on the screen for those of you who, who don't have a Bible with you. Therefore, says Paul, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be even named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving, for you can be sure of this. Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Grab a seat, bless you, by the way. Does that... Does that first phrase, just that kind of next explicit instruction of Paul at the beginning of verse, does that not blow your mind, take your breath away? Therefore, says Paul, here's what I want you to do. If, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, here's what I want you to do. Be imitators of God. Please, please just let that thought Percolate. The New Living Translation puts it like this Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do. See, if we think the bar was set high in chapter 4, Paul now takes this up a few more notches, to say the least. But if we're going to live this life, this life that's worthy of our gospel calling, then we have got to emulate God. Which is huge. 
It's a daunting prospect. Now back, but, as, but what does it actually mean to imitate God? I mean, back in chapter 4, those of you who were here, verse 24, Paul has already said, I want you to put on the new self that is created to be, do you remember? Created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So this idea of us being God-like, it's not a new idea that he injects in chapter 5. But what exactly does it mean to mimic God? To imitate the Almighty. Well, the particular aspect of this that Paul is stressing is spelt out in the second verse. Here's what it means, says Paul. Therefore, be imitators of God and walk in love. Live a life of love. This is our calling. Clinton Arnold writes in response to this verse, the continuous display of love for one another is the epitome of what it means to be Christian. A Christian. And given that Paul starts this opening verse in chapter 5 with that word, therefore, we need to connect this with what he's been saying and with what he has just written, which is at the very end of chapter 4, here's what it looks like. Be kind, be compassionate, be forgiving. And so if we are going to imitate God, if we are going to walk in love, how should our lives be characterized? Our lives should be characterized by kindness, by compassion, and by forgiveness. That is how you identify a Christian. That is what it looks like to walk as Christ walked. That is what it means to back up what you believe by how you live so that there are no contradictions, so that there is no discipleship gap, so that we do not send out confusing signals saying, we believe this, but guess what? Here's how I actually live. I am not kind. I am not compassionate. I am not forgiving. And again, Paul kind of raises the bar a little bit further as he simply explains what it means to be a Christian, because he says, here's the motive for this. Just as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God. So you want to know what this looks like to imitate God? You walk in love. What does that look like? You be kind, you be compassionate, you be forgiving. And who is your model? What is your model? Jesus is your model. This is your pattern. And what kind of love is this? Sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. And so do you know something? See, to be kind, at times it's going to hurt. See, to be compassionate, it's going to be painful. See, to forgive each and every time you've been offended, it's going to be hard. Your model is the sacrificial love of Jesus. And if we're not going to live like this, I need to stop. I need to stop claiming to be something in practice I'm actually not. And so in your relationships and in your interaction with people today and this week, let me encourage you to consider, what does it look like right now for me to imitate God's love as graphically modeled by Jesus with this person sitting next to me this morning? 
with the person I'm going to go in and sit next to and work tomorrow morning, with the people in my classroom, in my lecture hall. What does it actually mean for me to imitate God and walk in love here and with these people? And Paul then moves on in his teaching from this appeal to self-sacrifice to a warning against self-indulgence. And he confirms three Big no's for God's distinctively and distinctly different people. Which he then follows up with three no-go expressions of Christian speech. So let's start with the three big no's. Here they are. But among you, there must not be even a hint. These are improper for God's holy people. So number one, there must not be even a hint, even a whiff of sexual immorality. Some translations like the ESV or the RSV, if you use that, say it mustn't even be named among you. So to be honest, I am almost nervous to name this this morning and to talk about it up front in this context. But sexual immorality, says Paul, it is improper for God's holy people. Now this term, sexual immorality, has a long history, and I don't have time to go into it in huge detail, but it has a long history and understanding of referring to two unmarried people having consensual sex. But in its broadest sense, it refers to any kind of sexual activity outside of a committed marriage relationship. That's what sexual immorality means. Now, in the culture that Paul was writing into, illicit sexual activity was part and parcel of everyday life. I don't need, again, to go into graphic detail, but rampant sexual immorality in Greco-Roman society was the norm. It's just common practice. And therefore, this instruction, this advice, this directive was pretty countercultural. It jarred with so many people, to say the least. But to imitate God and to walk in love meant that for God's holy people, his saints, those who are chosen, those who are adopted, those who are saved, those who are forgiven, those who are redeemed, those who are sealed, those who are secure, those who are God's masterpiece, all those true ID statements. For God's holy people, his word on this issue, his plan, his desire, his design for sex needed to be embraced, understood, and lived out. And what is that? What is that? Well, for centuries, God's word on sex and marriage was believed and recognized to mean, so, so what I'm about to share are historically biblical and orthodox Christian views. I'm not saying, I'm not suggesting that these have always been liked, that these have always been accepted or entertained. I am just saying that this that I'm about to share with you is what the vast majority of humanity recognized as Christian. That God intended marriage as a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman. That marriage isn't simply a human arrangement, but it is something sacred in God's eyes. That God himself joins a man and a woman together and they become, biblical language, one flesh. 
And this understanding, this worldview, this God view, this God design, this God intention, this God given gift prohibits all forms of sexual activity outside of a marriage bond. The interesting thing now is this. For centuries, that is, that is what most people have understood for centuries. The interesting thing now is that, see, to believe this, see, to promote this, see, to live accordingly and maintain this orthodox perspective, it's not only sad, it's not only naive, it's not only antiquated, but as he said at the beginning, it's increasingly offensive, it's oppressive, it's degrading, it's judgmental, and it's downright wrong. And I know, I know, I honestly know that there are aspects of this that are complex and complicated and that there are those from within the wider church who do want to question and undermine the authority of the Bible in determining boundaries of Christian conduct and discipleship. But you see, as I read Paul's letter to the Ephesian saints, as I filter what Paul says here through the lens of the rest of Scripture, I am not at liberty to kind of salami slice biblical text and interpret it in light of certain cultural shifts and sensitivities. And whenever kind of culture becomes the arbiter of truth, as opposed to the creator of life, then where do we go with that? So many issues. And that's not, I'm not saying it because I want to be a killjoy, and I know I may take a bit of flack for this. I don't say it's because I want to be a killjoy, or I'm heartless, at least I hope I'm not, or I'm thoughtless with regard to many people's struggles and frustrations, but it's because I passionately believe that unless we understand sex from the perspective of its creator, and we use that as our reference point, and that as our starting point, then we will never fully grasp, we will never fully get his ideal and his desire for human flourishing. And can I also just say something, and now I'm going off script. But what we absolutely must bear in mind is that our fundamental identity and value lie in being created in the image of God rather than in our gender and sexuality. So positively, this is why Christians celebrate being a child being single, being widowed, just as much as being someone who is sexually active. All are equal in worth, and all can be equally fulfilled in life, despite our culture's preoccupation with sex. But equally, since we're made in the image of God and we're designed to reflect that image, then we've got to listen to, we've got to take note of what God says about how to live in his image, and that requires us to affirm that sex outside of heterosexual marriage, and that, by the way, that means all sex outside of heterosexual marriage. Say in our thinking, we immediately go to the whole same-sex gay marriage thing. All sex is improper. For God's holy people outside of its God-given context. And I know that's unpopular. Now, 
That's not all that could be said. That's not all that should be said. And I do know there, there are a depth, there is a depth of feeling. And there are gut reactions who will be internally disturbed by what I've said or what I haven't said. But all I'm doing, and please hear me, this is I'm only echoing and presenting Paul's instructions here that there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality among us. Other ways, other ways, we who belong to God are not going to live a life worthy of our calling. Just one more linked comment. And it's back, it's back to what I said at the start about this need and calling for Christians to imitate God and walk in love, to show compassion, to be kind, to forgive. Because you see, here, here's, here's the thing for us. How are we going to respond to people who think, believe, and behave differently to us? And this is where we've got it so badly wrong, I believe. And from some of that is the challenge we go away from here this morning. How do I imitate God? How do I walk in love? How do I be kind, be compassionate, be forgiving to those who do not have a biblical worldview and who do think it is downright oppressive and wrong? How am I going to react to them? Let me really quickly go back to the text. What time is it? Quarter two. The next big no, and I'm, I'm really going to risk this. The, the next big no is impurity. So we've no to sexual immorality, says Paul. Not even a hint of it. Secondly, no impurity. Yes, this is linked to sexual immorality, but, but it's broader than that. Back in chapter 4, those of you who are here, in verse 19, Paul made the point that self-indulgent impurity, in other words, doing whatever you want or whatever you feel like doing, those are characteristics of non-Christian living. But back in chapter 4, Paul says, you know something? Those of you who are now in Christ, you've got to live differently from that. So impurity, sexual or otherwise, has got to be taken off. And thirdly, in this trio of no's is greed. This ungodly desire to acquire more and more should not be a feature of true disciples of Jesus Christ. And so having dealt with some more actions, because he's been dealing with these back in chapter four, as we heard last week, but dealing with some more actions like sexual immorality and impurity, dealing with some more attitude, or at least one more attitude of greed, Paul now returns to the issue of our speech. And he refers to three ways of speaking that Christians have simply got to ditch, they've got to take off. Obscenity, foolish talk, and coarse joking. And I know, in a sense, Excuse the pun, they speak for themselves. Crude, foolish, filthy words, jokes, innuendo, just do nothing but send mixed messages and contradict your new and true identity. So again, if they've become part of your life, if they're part of my life, I need to take them off. I need, them to, I need to delete them from my everyday vocabulary. And then, and I'm, and I'm going to finish here, then Paul makes a pretty big and bold statement. He says, do you know something? See, anybody who, who is immoral, who is sexually immoral, who is impure, who is greedy, they are at the end of the day, and, and I know this is strong, but they are at the end of the day an idolater. In other words, their wants, 
their desires, their feelings, their agenda have taken priority. God is no longer first in their lives. They are selfish. Self has usurped God's rightful place in their lives. But it's more serious than that. Because not only are they guilty of idolatry, not only are they guilty of breaking and kind of ripping apart the first two commandments, but you see, if a person persists in these things, they will not enter the kingdom of God here or hereafter. And it just seems, and, and as I say, I know that's strong. But it seems in these few verses that Paul is strenuously warning against some kind of downward spiral because what immoral, immorality and impurity and greed do is they attack the body, they corrupt the mind, they sour the tongue, they infect your new nature, and they risk separating your very soul from God. And so says Paul, listen, I urge you, I urge you, live a life worthy of your calling to be a saint, chosen one, to be a child of God, to be someone who's been drenched in grace, be someone who's been forgiven, saved, someone who's alive, who's seated with Christ, who's been raised up with Christ, who is God's masterpiece. That is your calling. Live a life worthy of that. What does that mean? It means you imitate God. You walk in love. You are kind, you're compassionate, you're forgiving. Do not be sexually immoral. Do not be impure. Do not be greedy. And watch your life. We're going to close. Uh, I'm going to just pray as we close. Is that okay? Sorry. Ran out of time. Uh, I'm just going to leave a, a moment's silence. And I, I realize, as I said, I realize people are going to have lots of questions about this and are going to possibly want to talk to me about this. And I really encourage you to do that. Because we have got to talk about this stuff. And we've got to create these safe places and spaces where we can do that. So please do talk to me about this. And if I have offended anyone this morning, and if I've said something that has been inappropriate and not God-like, then before Almighty God, I'm sorry. So let's pray together as we close. Father, we have reflected many times on how your word is a living word. Your word is fire. Your word is a hammer that breaks rock to pieces. Your word is a mirror. Your word is a sword. And many of those images and ideas, God, are, are not particularly comfortable at times. And your word is a double-edged scalpel that kind of rips us open and gets in and agitates and aggravates in order to bring about healing and restoration. And so, God, I pray that by your Spirit, you will take your word where it has been preached, spoken faithfully this morning, and ensure it finds a resting place. And where it has been spoken or preached inappropriately, that it is quickly forgotten.
And so for each of us this morning who are your saints, I pray that you would continue to help us and teach us and lead us out in a life that is worthy of our calling. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus, our pattern and our model. Amen.